We read God's Word this morning in Revelation 3. We'll read the entire chapter, but especially for our purposes, it's verse 7, and then other comments that the Spirit says to the church in Philadelphia that are our special interest today. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest, and art dead. Be watchful, and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received, and heard, and hold fast, and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth." Behold, I come quickly, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down from heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mightest see. 
as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This far we read the word of God. We take instruction from the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 31 this morning. Questions and answers 83 through 85. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline or excommunication out of the Christian church. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is opened to believers and shut against unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and shut by the preaching of the Holy Gospel? Thus... When according to the command of Christ, it is declared and publicly testified to all and every believer that whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits. On the contrary, when it is declared and testified to all unbelievers and such as do not sincerely repent, that they stand exposed to the wrath of God and eternal condemnation so long as they are unconverted. According to which testimony of the gospel, God will judge them both in this and in the life to come. How is the kingdom of heaven shut and opened by Christian discipline? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, those who under the name of Christians maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith, and will not, after having been often brotherly admonished, renounce their errors and wicked course of life, are complained of to the church or to those who are thereunto appointed by the church. And if they despise their admonition, are by them forbidden the use of the sacraments, whereby they are excluded from the Christian church and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. And when they promise and show real amendment, are again received as members of Christ and his church. Beloved saints in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven has keys. That's the very idea that underlies and the figure that's woven into both the passage we read in Holy Scripture as well as the 31st Lord's Day. The kingdom of heaven has keys. What is that kingdom of heaven? Well, that's the sphere in which Jesus Christ rules. It's His kingdom in distinction from the devil's kingdom. It's His kingdom in which He brings into it all who, born dead in sin and trespasses, as are all men, 
are nevertheless bought by His blood, chosen from eternity, renewed by His Holy Spirit. It is the kingdom, the sphere in which He rules by His grace. But when we speak of this kingdom of heaven, we're not speaking of this kingdom as it will finally be manifested one day in heaven later, but we're speaking of it as you see it today. And you see it today in the church of Jesus Christ. No, it isn't that the kingdom of heaven has perfectly come here in the church of Jesus Christ on earth. But the point is this. Membership in the church on earth, but then even more than that, the testimony of Jesus Christ to those who are members of the church on earth that there is a place reserved for them in heaven. That testimony comes through the preaching of the gospel and through the work of Christian discipline and constitute the keys by which the kingdom of heaven is opened to believers and shut against unbelievers. And so this figure compares the kingdom of heaven to the way a kingdom would have been in the days in which the, Bible, the biblical writers lived. A Jerusalem, for instance, that had walls and gates. In a way, the United States of America has something similar. It has border crossings. And it has men at those border crossings who are permitted to, en- to permit in, but also to forbid to enter in those who try to cross the border. There is a way however effective or not, we'll see that Christ is effective and all men's kingdoms and men's attempts aren't and cannot be. But there is a way to keep out those who belong out and let in those who belong in. In the Old Testament, that happened by building a wall around a city, a thick wall, a wall such as surrounded Jericho, in which apparently two chariots could be riding on the wall side by side, so thick was the wall. A wall like that of Jerusalem that securely and firmly guarded the city. But because there's a wall, if the whole wall were solid, none can get in and none can get out. There are also periodically gates. And at the gates, gatekeepers. And in the hands of the gatekeepers, keys. So that they can lock the gates to keep out those who belong out, or open the gates to let in those who belong in. Now the church's walls really amount to the work of God's sovereign grace in Jesus Christ. That the church would have walls and some may be in and others belong out simply testifies to the fact that not every human is a child of God. And not every human belongs in the church. So what's the difference between those who belong in and out? Well, we know the answer is the grace of God. First of all, the walls of the church are not something ministers do and elders do. First of all, the walls of the church is a saving work of God in Jesus Christ, the irresistible grace by he brings in those who belong in and will not permit in, especially into heaven, those who belong out. But the enforcing of that, 
the walls as you see them and the gates especially and the gatekeepers as you see men working those gates are ministers and elders in the church of Jesus Christ. Through them, Christ lets in those who belong in and Christ keeps out those who belong out. Now, all that we have in Lord's Day 31 is set forth for our comfort. That, after all, was the very practical theme of the entire Heidelberg Catechism. And though the word comfort isn't used in Lord's Day 31, let's remember that that's the theme and bring it in here. I do that intentionally. Not every person likes the doctrine set forth in Lord's Day 31. Not every person likes to hear that I might have a son or daughter or a relative or a friend who, according to the declaration of the gospel as it comes through the mouth of a minister, though he or she might be in the church outwardly, is not in the kingdom because he or she does not Believe and repent. Not everyone likes to hear that through the work of the elders, when they do it in the name of Jesus Christ, applying Christian discipline to the members of the church, and finally saying to one or another, you are excommunicated, and as long as you remain impenitent in your sin, you are outside the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone likes to hear that. And as a response, we often would hear this thrown back. What business do men have making these pronouncements? The answer is, they are men who function in the name of and authority of Christ. And yes, there's a calling that comes to every pastor and elder in that connection then consciously function in his name and authority and let us not go off on our own. But I want to bring comfort because the doctrine can be set negatively. Jesus Christ has keys and he lets into his kingdom those who belong in and he keeps out those who belong out. Now would you rather it was different? Would you prefer now that Jesus Christ himself let in all who wanted to be in and kept out none? What comfort would that be? That Jesus Christ holds keys and uses the keys reminds us that he knows for whom he died. And the comfort especially is for us who believe and repent that there is a place for us in the kingdom of God. The comfort is very personal. The child of God, conscious of the remaining indwelling sin in me and its power, conscious that I, I now as the man standing before you preaching, I have in me such an old man of sin as makes me 
incapable of transgressing the law of God and becoming stubborn and obstinate in my transgression. I know that through the use of the keys of the kingdom on me, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will preserve me. He might send me out for a time. He might say the way you're living and because of your impenitence in that way, get out. And so long as you remain impenitent, stay out. But then he'll say to me, when he's brought me to repentance, now you may come in again. This is comforting. So I call your attention to this under the theme, Christ's effective use of his keys. Notice first, Christ's keys. Secondly, Christ's use of of his keys, and thirdly, the effectiveness of his youths. The two keys of the kingdom are identified in Lord's Day 31 of the Heidelberg Catechism as being in the first place, the preaching of the gospel, and in the second place, Christian discipline. We need briefly to describe the keys, although you're not unfamiliar with what these things are. Especially the preaching of the gospel has been mentioned already not long ago in Lord's Day 25 as part of the means of grace. And so it's the same concept, but a different function of the preaching that's brought up here. The preaching of the gospel is the setting forth of the fullness of the saving work of God in Christ. The setting forth of that fullness to the people of God by one who is called by the church to proclaim the gospel. In other words, when we speak of the preaching of the gospel, we have to remember the beautiful gospel that's preached. I need to remember it because I'm a sinner. And the beautiful gospel that's preached speaks to me who is a sinner and says, for you, for me, there is the forgiveness of sins. For you... And for me, there is a renewal of life, a quickening of the soul, a strengthening of the life of Jesus Christ in us. For you and for me, saved by the blood and spirit of Christ, there is the hope of heaven and growth in godliness until such time as we come to heaven. That's the gospel. Now there's something else that must accompany the gospel. And the Lord's Day in question and answer 84 underscores that something else when it not only says, well, it's publicly declared to every believer, uh, but it says you must hear the promise of the gospel. And in addition to the promise, you must hear the testimony to the unbeliever. In other words, there are promises and warnings added to the gospel. When the gospel is preached, the preacher may not just say there is a Jesus Christ, he died for sinners, isn't that good news? But he must say to you, on the basis of the scriptures, there is for you who believe beautiful blessedness. There is for us who believe 
the knowledge that our sins are forgiven. There is for us who believe the daily living in the consciousness that our sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. And there is in us who believe a delight to walk in accordance with the law of God. But with the promises of the gospel comes a call, a command. Now repent. See the indwelling sin that remains in you and in me. Repent and live the way the gospel requires of us. In addition, the preaching of the gospel must contain warnings. Not just on a mission field, because maybe there we'll come across some or many who aren't believers, but in the church of Jesus Christ as well. Because inherent in the idea that there are walls and gates in the kingdom of heaven and that the kingdom has keys to work those gates, is that some in the church must go out. To them, in the preaching of the gospel, there's a warning. Do you not believe? You sit in a pew. You sit under the preaching of the gospel. But do you leave saying, yes, yes, Christ. He set a good example for me to follow. It's good I came to church to hear of His example and be reminded, but I do not need His righteousness because mine, mine is sufficient. And the preaching of the gospel includes a warning to such. No. You are not in the kingdom. You might sit in a pew, but you are not in the kingdom as long as you think that way. That much about the preaching of the gospel, but to sum it up, if the gospel is not what's preached... And if it is not brought by the church as a body through one whom she's called to bring it, then we don't have a key that Christ uses effectively. It is when He raises up men through the church to preach that gospel that we have an effective key. Second key is that of Christian discipline about the process of Christian discipline and the various steps involved, I'm not going to say anything today. You know what they are. Matthew 18 sets them forth. This Lord's Day reminds us of the basic steps there must be to those who walk in sin. Brotherly admonitions. Now that means it started with you in the pew. And then after often brotherly admonished, do not renounce their errors, there must secondly be a complaining of them to the church, which means a bringing of the matter to the elders of the church. And then there must be on the part of the elders another work and set of admonitions to that one who will not believe or live in accordance with faith. And finally, not finally, but further, if that one doesn't heed the admonitions, must be a forbidding of the use of the sacraments, a silent censure, and then increase or following steps of censure. And finally, if need be, 
and excluding of them from the Christian church and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. That much as regards the steps and what the process involves. And yet it's not really much different, is it? From how a parent disciplines a child. Especially when that discipline is done in love. For maybe when my child sinned and I was angry and frustrated with a child, I did not begin gently. But if I love my child and my child sins, I go to the child first of all with a gentle reproof. Child. That's not how a child of God is to live. And if their child receives the reproof, that's sufficient. But if the child does not receive that reproof, but shows himself obstinate and unwilling to hear reproof, then my admonitions, my chastisements must become more severe. And I say to the child, in addition to reproof, there are consequences. And first, the consequences are relatively mild. You're grounded or something. And then later I need to increase the severity of the consequences. And in some instances, especially when a child, after many admonitions, persists in unbelief or gross immorality against the law of God and gross insubordination to me as a father, I might even have to say to him, now it's time to move out of my house. So, with Christian discipline. This is, in other words, not what some think it to be. You made a little mistake, and boy, did the elders come after you with a heavy hand. That isn't a proper a description of what godly brotherly Christian discipline is. It is rather a patient working with a sinner. Yes, that patience sometimes increases the severity of the consequence. And finally at the end says, you're outside of the kingdom, but it is a patient, loving, working with the unbeliever or the sinner all the while saying to the sinner, your soul and the salvation of your soul and ultimately where that soul will be in eternity is at stake. That Christian discipline is the work of elders in the church. Believers have a role in it. A role sometimes to begin the process when you know of somebody who's living in sin. A calling to enforce it. When the elders inform you of one who's under discipline and ask you to pray for and to admonish him or her. But no individual sets one outside the kingdom of God. The church of Jesus Christ through her elders because through them Jesus Christ works. I've given as much of a description of the keys as I'm going to. I want to emphasize the point. These are Christ's keys. They're not my keys. 
They're not the consistory's keys. They are the church's keys exercised through the consistory, but fundamentally, they are Jesus Christ's keys. Every time you use and see the phrase in Scripture with reference to excluding from the kingdom or letting in the kingdom, the emphasis is on that they are Christ's keys. Matthew, rather, yes, Matthew 16, verse 19. Jesus says to Peter, I give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Emphatically, what Jesus was not doing is saying, I have the keys in my hand, but uh, I'm really in no position to use them. In fact, I'm going to be going to heaven later, and I can't use them there, so you, Peter, better use them for me. I won't use them anymore. You will use them. No, Jesus is saying, I use them. They are mine. You will use them, Peter, in my behalf. He retains the use of the keys. The same thing can be said with Romans, uh, Revelation 3, verse 7, a passage from which we read earlier today to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David. The text refers back to Isaiah 22, verse 22, a prophecy of one who would come who holds the key of David. The point of the phrase is that this one who would come would be a king. It would be a king from David's line. And he would be the one entrusted with the government of the church, but also with administering justice in the church. The figure of a key includes all that. Now, Revelation 3, go back to Matthew 16 a moment. That was Jesus on earth before he died. Revelation 3 is Jesus after he died, ascended at the right hand of God, and he says, I have, I have the key of David. He didn't give it away so that he no longer has it. There are other passages also that indicate the point. When in Matthew 18, Jesus commands the church to do Christian discipline, his point is not that he's hands off, this is your job, and I'm going to stand back. His point is that he works in and through the church. And so as the church administers Christian discipline, she does so in his authority and he through her. When in Mark 16 verse 15, just before he ascends, Jesus says to his disciples, he's made apostles, that they're to go into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. His point is not that because he goes off to heaven, he no longer can do the work. It's up to them, but his point is that he works through them. These are Christ's keys. And that's comforting. In addition to being comforting, there's a responsibility involved now to the elders and the pastors of congregations. I may use the keys how I want, just when I want, 
just on whom I want. They're Christ's keys. We must use them as Christ would. But this is comforting. Jesus Christ always uses his keys rightly. But he did not just say is that every pastor always preaches the gospel purely or rightly. What I did not just say is that in every instance, every consistory always does the work of Christian discipline properly or rightly. I did not say those things. But I said, Jesus Christ always uses his keys aright. That means that when I don't like what the preacher said, I must nevertheless ask, but was it the word of Christ? That when I don't like what the elders just informed me of regarding a member of the church, I must say, but is this the word of Christ? And there are those, especially under discipline, who will say, no, they botched it this time. Maybe they got it right some other time. Maybe in a lot of instances, Jesus Christ works through the preaching and through the elders the way Lord's Day 31 says, but not this time. I'm right. And that's that person who says that. He's to go ask himself. Not how did the elders do it wrong? That's not first of all the question. First of all the question is, what will Jesus say the day you die? What will Jesus say the day we stand before him in the body and in the great day of judgment? What does Jesus say now in your consciousness and conscience? That's the issue. And Jesus Christ, who uses his keys, does so rightly. Many a time then, a person who under discipline says, but the elders made this and that mistake. And maybe they did. And maybe the person may draw that to their attention. And maybe the elders in such a case ought acknowledge their mistake. Nonetheless, but are you living impenitently in sin. What does Jesus Christ say? Jesus Christ uses these keys. And the second point, there's three things I want to underscore. Why, when, and how. Why why does Jesus Christ use keys? And the answer is to defend his church and keep his church pure. Not sinless. The keys don't have that effect that you and I become sinless in this life. But pure and enabling us to grow more and more in holiness and in love for right. That's why Christ uses his keys. Many ignore this. 
Many think that the church belongs to man. And because the church belongs to man, we should let in the church anyone who wants to be in the church. Or, many say, Christ loves everybody. So we should let into the church everyone who says Christ loves them, because who are we to judge? But Jesus Christ says, no. There are some who belong in, and there are some who belong out. They might say to me, even as late as the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not done many miracles in thy name? He'll say to them, but I don't know you. You don't belong in. And that must be reflected in the church of Jesus Christ on earth as well. It's for that reason that Jesus Christ in the Old Testament sent the prophets and in the New Testament sent the apostles to preach the gospel. It's for that reason that as you read in the book of Acts of the gathering of a church of believers All who were unbelievers did not want to be part of that church, but at the same time, some were in it, tried to be in it, sought to be baptized to appear that they were in it, because they saw it as a way to hold power, a way to control and manipulate others. And through an apostle Peter, for instance, on one Simon, The Holy Spirit said to that Simon, you're out. You don't believe. Why does Jesus Christ use his keys to defend the church spiritually and keep her pure? You and I can appreciate that. How? No, sorry, when? And the answer here is that this is the work of Jesus Christ throughout all of New Testament history. There's no point at which Jesus Christ is not using the keys. The preaching of the gospel is continual. It's ongoing. It's weekly at the least in and among believers. And the preacher who preaches the gospel, therefore, must every day be studying that gospel and preparing to bring it to the congregation in order that they might understand that the believer is in and the unbeliever is out. The work of Christian discipline is a continual work. That doesn't mean that in every congregation, at every point in time, there's somebody under discipline. That's not the implication to draw from that. But the elders of the congregation are at every time watching over the souls of the people of God and ready to do the work both of sending out those who belong out and letting in those who belong in. For Jesus Christ is ever vigilant regarding his church and the dangers she faces. And now how? Here's the principle. By his word and spirit. To say he does it by his word is to bring the matter back again to the preaching of the gospel and the work of Christian discipline. For the preaching of the gospel is the conveying in words of the word of God. 
He uses his word to this end. And that way, too, it becomes evident that it's not just a man. It's not just a preacher who decides who's in and who's out. When the preacher goes to the scriptures, opens up the scriptures, brings forth the scriptures, applies the scriptures to the people of God, Jesus Christ is working to let in those who belong in and out those who belong out. When I say that he does so by his word, this also brings us back to the matter of Christian discipline. For the admonitions of elders to those who are impenitent or unbelieving. The exhortations of elders are based on the word. They are words of elders to the member of the congregation based on the word of God. Jesus Christ uses his Word. This is actually liberating to the preacher. I know that from experience, and so it must be also to the elders. All we have to do is faithfully bring the Word. It doesn't minimize the calling. All we have to do is faithfully bring word. And then by his spirit. And this now is beyond the preacher's control and it's beyond the elder's control. I can bring the word faithfully. I cannot govern how that word affects you. It's not within my power to make you say I believe. It's not within my power to make you see Say, oh, I see the horror of my sin. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. But here's the point. The Jesus Christ exalted to the right hand of God who has chosen a certain number from all eternity and laid down his life on the cross to redeem us from our sin. That Jesus Christ knows whom his are. And as the word is proclaimed, and as the word of the elders is brought from person to person, the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of his own so that they hear and they believe. That's his word to me. An irresistible, powerful grace of God. The Holy Spirit works in the child of God in a sanctifying way. You wouldn't say that about the Holy Spirit's work regarding an unbeliever. Not a work in, and not a work in a sanctifying way. Nevertheless, also the word as it comes to the unbeliever and impenitent is a word that Jesus Christ brings by his word and spirit. The spirit now not in and not sanctifying, but upon the unbeliever, saying to that unbeliever, don't you fool yourself. This is what Christ said of you. He sees you as an unbeliever. He sees you as impenitent. Don't you fool yourself until you believe and repent. You are outside the kingdom. 
that these are the keys that Jesus Christ holds and uses is the explanation for their effectiveness. And this really is the point of Lord's Day 31. Lord's Day 31 not only identifies the two keys of the kingdom, but drives home this point. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is opened to believers and is shut against unbelievers. There's an effectiveness that comes out again in question 84. How? How is the kingdom of heaven open and shut by the preaching of the gospel? 85. How is the kingdom of heaven shut and opened by Christian discipline? And in the answers likewise, according to which testimony of the gospel, God will judge them both in this and in the life to come. And also in answer 85, that those who despise the admonitions and are excluded from the Christian church are by God himself excluded from the kingdom of Christ. And when they promise and show real amendment, are again received as members of Christ and his church. The Heidelberg Catechism is driving home the effectiveness of the use of the keys. And it wasn't just the idea of reformed men who said, if we state it this way, we can have a spiritual power over people and we can make them do what we want them to do and we can have control over them. But it was reformed fathers who said, look at what our Lord and Savior himself says in the Holy Scriptures. Matthew 16, verse 19. I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Matthew 18, verse 18. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Mark 16, verse 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And Revelation 3, verse 7. These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David. He that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. The effectiveness of the use of the keys. What is their effect? It's fourfold. On the one hand, the keys work in that gate to let into the kingdom those who are not in the kingdom but belong in. Well, that refers really to you and to me from the viewpoint of our being born dead in sin and trespasses. Even though we're brought into the kingdom by the work of regeneration and the implanting of faith in our hearts, yet Christ declares to us by bringing us to conscious faith that in fact we who were by nature out are brought in. I need the preaching and the key power it gives. But similarly, this opening to let in refers to those who've been born outside the covenant. They were born to unbelieving parents and only in time do they come to hear the gospel and to believe the gospel and then the word to them isn't, sorry, you were born to the wrong kind of people, too bad for you, but the word to them is, you're in. You believe the gospel, you're in the kingdom of heaven. And 
this first effect of opening to let in is a word to those who've been excommunicated from the church but have been brought to sincere sorrow for their sin and believe and confess you're in. You're in. Not because of anything you've done, but because your repentance and your hatred of your sin and your looking to Jesus Christ is His work in your heart, His testimony to you. He brings you in. The first effect is to open to let the godly believer in. But then there's a closing to keep that believer in. There's times I would never say now that I wish I was outside of the church. I'd never say that I wish I was an unbeliever. That, it might be that some of God's people do think that. But I know this. There's times I say, that's my old man speaking, you understand that. I'm in. But oh, the sins of the world, how good they look. How attractive they are. Can I? Can I stay in and enjoy those sins for a season? And the preaching of the gospel says to me, No! You're in. Stay away from that. Not only that, but the preaching of the gospel makes me want to as the Spirit uses it more and more to make me willing to hate sin and to live a life of godliness. The door was shut so I don't leave by the Holy Spirit working in my heart to hate sin, my sin, more and more. Number three, the door opens to let the unbeliever out. Again, that refers to the unbeliever who was born in the church or who came into the church some other way, but over time showed himself or herself not to love the truth. Such must be put out. He or she has continued impenitently in his or her sin and unbelief. And the door opens, especially the Christian discipline door now, but sometimes the preaching of the gospel too. And that person says, I can't stand to hear about this Christ. It's all that preacher can talk about. He can't talk about how good I am. He gives me no credit. I'm getting out of here. The door is open. The key is working. And the person leaves. And well, they ought. Because in the church of Jesus Christ, Christ must be magnified in the preaching, but in my life and in your life. Fourthly, that door closes to keep the unbeliever out. And such a one says, I would ever want to go back to that church. Oh, remember I'm talking about unbelievers now and those who continue in sin. So when they call us hypocrites and when they call us those who are ourselves sinners but, but treat other sinners differently, don't, don't right away get upset about that. You didn't expect them to speak highly of the church of Jesus Christ. But praise God that Christ has used his keys effectively. 
Now, so effective is this work of Jesus Christ that no man can shut. That's verse 7 again of Revelation 3. He that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I can't do something different than what Christ is doing as a preacher. I can't make Christ to say the keys didn't work. I might be unfaithful in my calling. That I'm, that, that I'm capable of. But I cannot make it so that Jesus Christ says the keys didn't work. Elders might make mistakes. They cannot make it so that Jesus Christ says the keys did not work. No man can open what he shut or shut what he opened. And therein lies the danger of a preacher, but also a family member, saying to somebody who's living in unbelief or sin, I think you're going to heaven yet. It's not what Christ said. Not for one who's living impenitently in sin. Similarly, and on the other side of the spectrum, there's the danger of anyone, a family member, a preacher, an elder, saying to one who does hate his or her sin and strives, though the struggle is great, strives to live in obedience to the law of God. Here's the danger saying to one, must not be in the kingdom because when you're in the kingdom, well, the Christian life is just a great life and there's not these struggles. No, that's man trying to keep in those who belong in, out, or keep out those who belong in. But Jesus Christ says this, do you see your sin right now? You hate it. Do you know that the only covering is a blood that you can't shed, but don't need to either because it's been shed already? The only atoning work is one that's already been done on a cross at Golgotha. And the wrath of God was poured out in Christ for you. Do you see that? And you look to Him alone then you are in. You say, I don't need Christ. Not that way. He's a good teacher. But I don't need his blood. Then you are out. Very practical application of a sermon on this Lord's Day and a topic wherever it's taught in Scripture is to impress upon each one of us that we examine our heart. That we recognize that mixed with true faith is a measure of unbelief as that father knew who said, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And that we go to sit under the preaching of the gospel again and again in order that that unbelief be rooted out and that faith strengthened. Very practical implication 
of a sermon on this subject is that you and I ask ourselves, am I living impenitently in sin? Then repent and believe. Or you and I, if not believing, will perish. Christ uses his keys effectively. This is comforting, beloved, to the church of Jesus Christ. I haven't time to spell that out, how the Lord did that more in his words to the church in Philadelphia. But he's setting before them an open door that no man can shut. And he says, hold fast. Hold fast. You, as a church of believers, will be in heaven. Not each and every head for head, necessarily. You, organically, as a church of believers. And so to the individual, you and to me, as members of the church, go where the keys are used. Don't say you're looking for men who use them flawlessly. But say you're looking to find where Christ uses them. And his use is always flawless. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, to thee be honor, glory, and praise. We've been called to faith and repentance. Give us to heed the call. Give any who will not repent or do not believe to be warned against the consequences and the sure punishment of sin by all who reject Christ. But give us to believe and to repent in that way also to see that Christ bore our punishment in full. And there is for us everlasting life and joys now and even more in heaven, joys which earth cannot afford. For Christ's sake, amen.